drowning simply doesn't, it has never been the target of a global strategic effort. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. dollar gains as treasuries fall with oil. The S&P 500 extends records on mergers and acquisitions deals. And the Shanghai stock buying through the exchange link uh, reaches its limits on day one. Japan seeks to bolster 2015 growth as recession risks abenomics. So what is the big deal? That's what we'll look at today on Money for Nothing. Yes, no puns intended. We talk about yesterday's M&A activity with guest host Andrew Sullivan and market commentator Dickie Wong of Kingston Securities. Then MR Rangaswamy of Sandhill Capital gives us a lowdown on tech deals attractive to angel investors in the San Francisco Bay Area. And to top it off, we are joined by serial entrepreneur Michael Cheng. His newest company, Snipply, has achieved in six months what Buffer took two years to achieve. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So welcome back from your trip away. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, let's take a look at today's stories. The S&P 500 edged up to close at a record as M&A deal activity worth $100 billion offset concerns about overseas growth. This is after Japan's economy slipped into recession. Activists has agreed to acquire Botox maker Allegan for $66 billion, and Halliburton is to acquire Baker Hughes in a $34.6 billion deal. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 12 points to 17,647. The S&P 500 gained 1.4 points to 2,041. And the Nasdaq Composite dropped 17.5 points to 4,671. The, the Shanghai stock buying through Exchange Link reached its limits on day one. Andy Maynard, who is the global head of trading and execution at CLSA, talks about the big macro drivers for the launch. Well, the big macro drivers are obviously going to be the continuing GDP numbers, the continuing GDP growth of China. And I think if you look for an institutional foreign investor's point of view, the big difference is that China is still relatively cheap compared to global peers. And that, to me, is the overriding sentiment and the overriding drive of why people, despite what's going on globally, economically, and maybe China, you know, after four years of not having a great market run from an equity point of view, I do think you're going to see a lot of basic bids coming into the market just to pick up certain stocks and certain plays, um, especially the infrastructure, especially the consumer type you know, stock community is going to definitely going to try to pick those ones up. Over the weekend, they announced that they were going to waive capital gains tax for foreign investors. How big of a deal is this? Obviously, the cancellation of CGT for three odd years or whatever it's going to be is a massive, massive move. And I think probably takes away the number one concern for most foreign investors going into China. It does then provide a lot more questions rather than answers, especially, you know, if you've been Q3 or RQ3 investors for the last 13 years, what happens going back? Are you now going to be in the same boat? But I would definitely say the biggest concern has been cleared up at least for three years on this monitorium going forward. So huge, huge news going over the weekend. And 
Andrew, the fact that uh, investors hit their limits on the first day of trading, is this something to be concerned about? I don't think it's something to be concerned about. I think a lot of the uh, providers of EFTs and the such like have used the uh, through train effectively to allow them to make more product. I mean, it now allows them to invest directly in Shanghai, whereas before they had to use their Q-feed to do Shanghai and Shenzhen. So now it allows them to double the amount that they can produce because they no longer have to use the Q-feed for Shanghai. They can double the amount they do in Shenzhen, which is not affected by the through train, uh, and and hence provide more product for people. All right, let's bring in Dickie Wong of Kingston Securities. Uh, Good morning, Dickie. Good morning. Dickie, the Stock Connect didn't exactly have a positive effect on the market here. The Hang Seng Index dropped 1.2% to 23,797, and the Shanghai Composite ended a fifth of a percent lower at 2,474. So why is this? Well, basically, uh, buy on rumor, sell on facts. That's the, the conclusion of yesterday's market performance. Uh, most of the blue chips don't open shopping higher, but that's the, the day high of it. So definitely, um, people are over too excited because of uh, the Shanghai and Hong Kong and Connect. In fact, we we talk about the um, fundamental. Um, Shanghai uh, now um, the index Shanghai Composite is now only trading at nine times PE, whereas the Hong Kong Hang Seng Index trading at ten times, um, basically ten point three times. So that's so simple. If there's the same stock in Shanghai is trading much lower, I mean, the price in, in Shanghai, why not buy in Shanghai? So that's so simple. So basically, I pull back what I will expect, and it will not give a big boost anymore to like Hong Kong Stock Exchange because like 40 plus times PE, and um, like yesterday, quarters only use up by less than 20%. It gives nothing to Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So I think a further pullback is the only way. Go south. I mean, um, Hong Kong um, Stock Exchange share price will go um, like further okay. downside in the top term. A- Andrew, how much do you think this might be a function of Japan slipping back into recession? Well, I think it... I mean, Japan slipping into recession is a, is a factor of the macro global markets. But uh, realistically... A lot of the Shanghai investors are retail investors, and they have to put a lot of money up to, in, 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 to be able to invest in Hong Kong. And as uh, Dickie has just said, Hong Kong is more expensive than Shanghai. So effectively, why would you put your money into a more expensive market? And I think the other thing you have to look at is the fact that the Shanghai market has actually been ramped in the last two, three months, ever since the uh, Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect has been announced. Dickie, um, is it the yeah. fact that the companies here listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange are actually more expensive, or is it that they are too similar, perhaps, to what is already available to investors in Shanghai or in China? Well, if we, right. If we talk about the blue chips, yes, definitely those are in um, Shanghai are much cheaper than Hong Kong. But um, if we talk about the broad market, like um, other stocks, um, Hong Kong, um, stock exchange, those stocks are, are at a more reasonable um, valuation. But because the through train, I mean, Hong Kong, um, Shanghai Connect, they can only buy 568 stocks. Those are the stocks that um, mainland investors, they don't focus on. Because mainland investors, they only focus on the stocks that are very bad, like the ST, um, Star ST stock. 
um, they don't focus in blue chip because um, in the past uh, couple of years, a long, a long bear market uh, make them fear about the stock market. All right. In fact, why the, the, the coal is only used up by 18%? Because local, um, in, I mean, the, the mainlander, the, the Chinese investor, they don't invest in the stock market. Why they invest in the Hong Kong stock market? That's the main question. Yeah, and what do you expect going forth, uh, Dickie, in the next uh, foreseeable future, in the next sort of first six weeks or so, um, you know, now that we've actually gotten off the ground? So basically, uh, same as yesterday, um, money northbound, they were doing great. And um, basically, they will use up uh, most of the cold daily cold limits holder by, on a daily basis. But southbound, like yesterday, maybe 10%, 20% of the holders, they may only use up. All right. Uh, Andrew, do you agree with him? Do you think we will actually get to see the money go northbound at some point? Well, I think a lot of the synthetic providers will definitely be going northbound. And the other thing you have to bear in mind is the fact for you know northbound investment, it gives them an an opportunity to invest in a number of stocks that aren't available in Hong Kong, whereas southbound investing is still going for the same names as you mentioned before. Right. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dickie. That is Dickie Wong of Kingston Securities. Well, Japan has fallen into recession. The unexpected contraction raises the odds that Prime Minister Shinze, uh, Shinze Abe will postpone a sales tax increase. Here's Jesper Cole, who's the head of Japan strategy at J.P. Morgan Chase in Tokyo, to give us his take. It's official now. Uh, Japan fell into recession, got pushed into recession by the VAT hike, um, you know, and uh, it makes much clearer the dramatic action that we saw by the Bank of Japan just a couple of weeks ago. So in terms of the policy reaction, monetary policy is already on full blast to counter against the recession. The next move is going to be fiscal policy with the delay in the VAT hike next year now a virtual certainty. But Manulife Asset Management Chief Economist Megan Green perhaps has another idea. Um, but that being said, everybody other than Abe really seems to be in favor of a further consumption tax hike. The central bank, the IMF, big business, uh, everyone. So there's a lot of pressure on him to actually go ahead and implement that. Um, I could see Abe calling a snap election to try to re-up his support. His opinion polls have fell pretty significantly in recent weeks. That being said, he's about twice as popular as the last guy. So, you know, he's not doing too badly. Um, I'm not sure that that will really matter. He already has a mandate to do what he needs to do again in terms of structural reforms. It's just whether he's really going to push them through. And on that, we've seen very little action. But even if they do delay all of this, can Japan risk a second shock? Uh, it's not going to risk a second shock. Uh, I think that the uh, team around Prime Minister Abe is incredibly pragmatic and is actually very well coordinated. As I said, the Bank of Japan has already spoken. Now, actually, what's interesting is what is happening in the private sector. And here, actually, there is some good news. You've started to see business investment expenditure in Japan beginning to recover. And at the end of the day, it's business investment expenditure that's going to lead a sustainable private recovery. Okay, so add to all of this the woes in the Eurozone, which is now struggling to grow since it emerged from recession last year. Megan Green says that in order for the officials to actually take action, Germany needs to go into real recession. 
So I think for Germany, they need to go into an outright recession, not just a technical recession, a real recession with unemployment soaring. Um, I think that would actually cause policymakers in Germany to change their mind about their approach and about their obsession with having a balanced budget. Um, in the rest of the Eurozone, you know, I think we need to see a bunch of really difficult, unpopular structural reforms. And no politician really wants to do that, so they would have to have their feet absolutely held to the fire to do that. And that kind of pressure will probably only come from the markets. So, Andrew, do you agree? Does Germany actually have to go into recession for uh, the officials in Europe to sort of do anything about this? Well, I think Germany's facing the problem, and this was illustrated by the G20 meeting in uh, Australia, is the fact that a lot of its exports go to places like Russia, and Russia's facing a a big recession. So it really has to rethink this balanced budget that it's been holding on to for the last three or four years. Draghi has again said that he's going to do whatever is required, which gives you some confidence. But at the end of the day, you know, he's got a very thin mandate and it's very difficult for him to push governments uh, to do something that isn't you know, going to be naturally electorally positive for them. Yeah, I think the world has been waiting for Draghi to actually do that something. Even after all the rah-rah about 2% world growth at the G20 meetings a few days ago, British Prime Minister David Cameron warned in an opinion piece in the Guardian newspaper yesterday that red warning lights are flashing for the world economy. What do you think of that? Well, I think he's quite right. I mean, I think uh, you know the, the slowdown in Europe is going to be a big impact. And, and as we were saying earlier, you know, Japan is you know, on a precipice. And the interesting thing, I think, about Japan is the fact that if you compare Abe calling a snap election to how Obama got an, on in the midterm elections, where effectively, although Japan Inc. is doing well, the man in the street and, and especially an ageing population is not doing particularly well. The question is whether he would get that renewed mandate. All right, a quick look at the numbers before we switch segments. Uh, all markets are up in Asia this morning. The Nikkei is up 1.5% to 17,221. Australia's ASX is up uh, just slightly to 5,401. Uh, 5, and Seoul's Kospi is up just under 1% to 1,000, uh, one-tenth of a percent, excuse me, to 1,959. In currencies, a one euro buys you one2 to four US dollars. One US dollar is currently worth 116 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12.12 Hong Kong dollars. We'll be back to talk more about angel investing and what uh, San Francisco's angel investors are looking for in their deals. That's right after this. If you are an SME that needs assistance in securing loans from lending institutions, the Trade and Industry Department's SME Loan Guarantee Scheme can help. Under the scheme, SMEs may secure loans with a government guarantee from lending institutions. The loan guarantees can be up to $6 million. The loans can be used as working capital or for buying equipment. For details, call 2398-5129 or visit the Trade and Industry Department website. Well, Silicon Valley is burgeoning with uh, venture capital deals that often bring to market some of the world's most successful tech companies. But much before these companies receive VC funding, while they're still in the startup phase, in fact, they look to uh, angel investors for seed funding. Now, this could be a risky proposition, but with the risk comes huge potential for reward. And that, my friends, is the nature of angel investing. So we've touched on this subject here quite a few 
few times as local Hong Kong investors are constantly looking for ways to become angel investors themselves. And so today we bring in MR Rangaswamy, who is the co-founder of Sandhill Capital, Sandhill Group, to understand what Silicon Valley angels look for in their deals. Now, MR has read several thousand business plans. He's met with thousands of entrepreneurs, and he has invested in over 40 tech companies himself. Is it a wonder, then, that he was named in Forbes' Midas 100 list as one of the most influential investors in technology? Good morning, MR. Good morning there, Renita. Oh, I should say good afternoon. Thank you for joining us from San Francisco. Not a problem. So, MR, I mean, it's all very interesting. We've got a lot of angel events happening here in Hong Kong where uh, local investors are constantly trying to find the right deal. Um, would love to know from your point of view in the San Francisco Bay Area, what is it that you look for in your deals? Yeah, I think the biggest thing we look for here is there's a whole feeling or ethos that people here want to change the world. So when you look at deals here, you want to look at companies or business plans or ideas that can be very disruptive uh, to markets, to companies, to economies. And that's what gets our juices flowing here. So disruptive. This is a word that comes up uh, in the context of startups all the time. Disruptive means means what? Means changing the face of things. But how? So in many different ways. Let's take two or three examples. I wish I was an angel investor in Tesla Motors that makes a 100% electric car. Or Uber that really provides you a service when you don't need to own a car. Or Airbnb, you know, that says rent people's homes instead of building hotels, right? So we think of these types of companies that can fundamentally change business models, change consumer behavior, and at the same time, you know, make a lot of money. Okay, so Emma, these are good examples that you bring up, but but isn't there a downside? So, for example, Tesla is burning cash, burning cash, right? And Patrick O'Shaughnessy of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, I think, just wrote a book on investing for the millennials, and he said, "Well, Tesla looks great; it looks very cool. You you know, you see uh, Elon Musk on the cover of magazines every day or every week, but the fact is that it could be very expensive for investors to invest in." What's your take on this? Well, my take is I'm not a public market guy. That's why I said I wish I was an angel investor at Tesla when they probably did their first round of funding at 10 or 20 million pre-money, right? Mm -hmm. And today you'd probably have made 100 times your money back. So I'm an angel investor. I take risks at the early stage when the valuations are very low and the chance of success is very low as well, right? Completely different than the public markets. So, MR, since you mentioned that the chance of success is also low, how do you know, and of course you don't know exactly, but how do you think through, you know, the fact that you are going to make this investment? What are are the odds that you are betting on for a particular kind of company? Can you give us an example, perhaps, of one of your investments? Yeah, one of my recent investments, again, is taking on uh, this whole area of sharing economy. For example... When you go on, uh, on a vacation, you probably want to go buy an expensive camera, and it could cost you 1000 or $2,000. And then you come back after a week, and you never, ever use it again. And within six months, it goes obsolete, right? That's kind of the traditional life cycle of an electronics product, right? Right. So I've invested in a company here called Lumoid, which shares the latest gadgets with you. So if you're going on a safari, you can get 
a camera from them, you share, so you rent it from them for a week. It gets shipped to you the next day by FedEx to wherever you are. You use the product, you download your pictures, you send it back, and it costs you one-tenth the cost, okay? Mm-hmm. And you never have to worry about a camera ever again, <laughs> right? Wouldn't this is that- going to fundamentally disrupt the whole electronics industry. All right. Okay, MR, interesting stuff. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is MR Rangaswamy, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Sandhill Capital. The time is now 8.23 a.m. And in uh, to lead straight from that last segment, here's a dilemma for all business owners. And that is, how do you boost your website traffic? Now, Snipply is a new startup that allows you to share content by attaching a message uh, to any page of content that you would like to share. You can include a link back to your own website, uh, your Kickstarter campaign, Eventbrite page, Amazon product, you know, what, what have you, whatever you would like. Joining us to explain... Explain this in further detail is co-founder Michael Cheng. Uh, he's here from Vancouver, and he is accompanied by Ian Reed, who is the president of Thai HK. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Reed. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So, Michael, tell us a little bit more about Snipply. What exactly is it all about? Well, Snipply rides on the trend that, you know, there's 27 million pieces of content shared per day, and that's really what fuels the web, making it the single largest opportunity for online marketing. Earlier this year, we built the technology that allows you to insert your own branding and call to action into every single piece of content you share, and that's what the business is around. So what would you say? I mean, you said earlier that Snipply um, has achieved what, Buffer achieved in took two years to achieve. Snipply has actually achieved in six months. Right. So what I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you hear about all these startups that are fantastic, doing really, really well, and then there's a lot of startups who don't. Well, take into consideration that we started building this technology and launched in March of this year. So that's about six months ago. Uh, as of now, we're nearing two hundred thousand dollars U.S. dollars per year. And that's a lot of money for three kids who just came out of school. So there, there's a very interesting financial opportunity in the startup world that's happening. It's very cheap to create digital products, and it has the potential to rise in valuation very quickly and very rapidly. Andrew, what do you think about that? Would you uh, uh, put your money in uh, this kind of financial opportunity? Well, I think it's, it's, it's something that most investors should have a, a small proportion of their portfolio in because at the end of the day, everybody wants a balanced portfolio. So you've got to take some risk and you've got to have some blue chips that are going to you know, give you a long-term reward. So what makes Snipply stand out, Michael, from other companies that I have the opportunity to invest in? Well, as we just talked about, it, it's disruptive technology. It changes the way people do things. And what we're disrupting is the whole concept of an ad space. Uh, if, you, if you understand how Snipply works, we're essentially allowing you to promote on any piece of content on the web. We're democratizing the concept of advertising space. And that's been a, that's been a thing for many, many years. You know, Google search engine has ad space. You buy ad space to be displayed on a certain website. And we're adding a social element. We're creating a social advertising ecosystem that fundamentally changes the way businesses see content as an opportunity for marketing. Now, you mentioned that a business could potentially uh, take a piece of content and 
almost rebrand it to look like their own. Am I getting this right? Right. So, so how it works is uh, Snipply creates a custom link. Instead of sharing the original link to, say, a Forbes article, you create a custom link, and only visitors visiting your special link sees the piece of content along with your branding and message. And we call this earned advertising. Right? You're driving traffic to the website, and only the traffic you drive sees your branding. So it benefits the publisher in a sense that they get incentivized sharing in a way that they haven't done before because a business normally wouldn't share that piece of article, but because they also have the potential to benefit from it, they can now share it. And so it benefits uh, both the consumer, the advertiser, and the publisher in an advertising ecosystem. Okay, so I was worried when you said that earlier, I was thinking, oh my gosh, copyright issues. <laughs> I'm sure that's a question that has come up. For sure. And, and we've spoken to a lot of publishers, Washington Post, Gawker Media, um, and, and you know they're also struggling. What is the future of content? They're looking to explore new revenue models and, as well. And I think that's what it means to build disruptive technology. It's how not only are we disrupting the role of content and marketing, we're also also disrupting the, the business models of publishers and we're all working together to explore what that looks like in the next five or ten years disrupting technology disruptive that word just keeps coming up doesn't it um okay michael what kind of funding are you looking for is snipply looking for so snipply started about six months ago you know we're, we're doing about two hundred thousand u.s dollars revenue per year we're looking to do our first seed round about five hundred thousand to 1.5 million u.s dollars uh and usually you know investors are more than welcome to come in for a minimum of $25,000 US dollars uh, or even higher as well. Okay, so Ian, uh, can I ask you, is that sort of the amount that we see local investors in Hong Kong, you know, the smaller pockets, uh, that, that kind of amount that they'd be investing in? Uh, I mean, it, it could be even smaller than that. But uh, I mean, I think as, as your co-host said, that essentially, if you're going to invest in these types of companies, you, sh- you should limit it to uh, maybe 10, 10% of your net worth. Um, and then obviously, in order to do to, to diversify within that portfolio, you need to have uh, smaller deal sizes. But there are plenty of startups who will accept uh, 10, 10K or, or even less. And um, again, you know, as MR Rangaswamy was talking about earlier, I mean, he, there is a strict uh, uh, process that he goes through when he looks at deals. Now, his deals being, you know, pitched to him there in Silicon Valley. Is there a difference uh, that we local Hong Kong investors face over here, either culturally or geographically or sort of with the deals that we see pitched, you know, to us here? Uh, I, I think generally Hong Kong investors tend to be a little bit more conservative than those in Silicon Valley. Uh, we like to see a revenue model uh, in our investments um, in Silicon Valley. Very often there is no revenue model. So um, I think we're a little bit uh, a little bit old school in that respect. But um, I mean, bear in mind that we are forming the ecosystem as we speak that, you know, three, four years ago, none of this was going on in Hong Kong. And now it's uh, it's starting to happen. And people like Michael uh, um, certainly, Hong Kong's engaging with the global community. We, 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 we brought Michael here, and uh, he'll be pitching on November 26th uh, with the British Chamber. At the British Chamber, that is at the British Cham Angels Club. That's uh, you. You can watch Michael uh, pitch snipply at 8 a.m. Uh, at the Hong Kong Club. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ian Reed, who is the president of Thai HK, and Michael Cheng, who is the co-founder and serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Snipply. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. A quick look at the numbers before we close up the show. Uh, gold is currently at $1,185.80. Brent crude oil is currently at $79.31. And Andrew, just in uh, 20 seconds or less, tell us what we should be looking out for in the next few days in finance.
Key thing for today, the China property numbers, and uh, that will be another indicator of whether China is really slowing down quickly, uh, and that's going to be a key on people's minds. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, that is Andrew Sullivan, who is our co-host for this morning. I am Renita Malhotra Hora. Closing up the show, this is Money for Nothing. Now, a quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. It'll be dry, slightly cooler with cloudy periods in the morning, mainly fine during the day. Currently, the temperature is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 69%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. A student pro-democracy activist says it's up to individual protesters to decide whether to obey a court order aimed at clearing barricades outside City Tower in Admiralty. Protesters have been staging sit-ins on main roads around Hong Kong for more than seven weeks. Court bailiffs are expected to take action this morning at City Tower. Police have said anyone obstructing them could be in contempt of court. A core member of the Federation of Students, Yvonne Leung, told RTHK this morning that she didn't believe Hong Kong's rule of law would be harmed if protesters obstructed the bailiffs. If we take this as a chance also to commit a civil disobedience, then maybe in the short run we indeed undermine the court status because we are not obeying its final ruling. But uh, I think some people may also um, are willing to bear the legal consequence of contempt of court in the long run, then it could still be an action uh, to honour rule of law if people are are responsible enough to really bear the legal consequences. Britain says it won't block the sale of tear gas to Hong Kong after reviewing its